I am a question to the world, not a podcast to be heard, or a moment that's held in your arms. (laughs) And what do you think you'd ever say? I won't listen anyway. You don't know me, and I'll never pod what you want me to cast. (laughs) How hard do you have to work to get that voice? And what do you think you'd understand? I'm a pod, no, I'm a cast. You can't pod me and cast me away. And how, how long are you going to go? Can you pod what's never cast? Yeah, you stand here on your own. They don't know me because I'm podcast. Okay, so when are you going to stop singing so that we can podcast? Podcast to be real. What a pod thinks I don't feel. That's enough. Want to cast on and feel I belong. Hey, Brad, just bring up the music and turn him down. He sang the whole song. Ahoy, everybody, and welcome to me, Mom and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. <laughs> We're watching every film in the... Di- oh, what's that? Mom's making a stabbing motion. Maybe I'll <laughs> knock the voice off. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined, as always, by my mother, Rue Coleman. How are you doing? Ahoy, Isaac. I'm doing all right. Yar. Yar. And we want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Sterling, tough, dependable, honest, brave, and true. Oh, don't worry, Brad. You know I don't mean a word of it. (laughs) This week on the program, we are continuing Disney's experimental era with the extremely experimental (laughs) 2002 film, Treasure Planet, directed by Ron John Musker and John Ron Clements. (laughs) I would, of course, be Ron Clements and John Musker. Yes. Mom, what does this movie mean to you? Well, I I don't recall that we went and saw this one in the theaters, but I know we saw it around the time it came out, whether we rented it from Blockbuster or whatever we did. I never thought it was anything that special when I first saw it. I feel like I found the main character, Jim Hawkins, kind of annoying. I know when we watched it again later, when you were like, I love this movie, watch it with me. When you were getting a little older, I was like, Ugh, he's so whiny that, you know, Jim Hawkins. <laughs> and it didn't seem, when we watched it this time, it didn't seem quite as annoying, but maybe I was like more prepared or I kind of had built it up in my head to worse than it was. But I remember the, even when the trailers first came out, thinking it looked like it was going to be really pretty, mm-hmm. which it is. It's funny because this movie always, if you describe it, seems like exactly the sort of thing I would love. Right. Well, you know who does love this movie? Me. Yeah. So I'm positive I saw this in theaters. Oh. I think what it was was some family members took us to it, right? Took my brother and I. 
and you guys got to do something else and you're like, you know, yeah, it's a Disney movie. It's fine. <laughs> I might be conflating that with I know that also happened with Sinbad, a pirate movie from around the same time. Okay. I think it has some longer title. Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas. That was the next year. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that happened both times. It's possible. I definitely had for a long time, like, you know how sometimes the theaters will like give away a, a tiny piece of something with the with the movie. Yeah. Especially if you're a kid, like maybe you get a little lanyard or something. Mm-hmm. I definitely had like, <laughs> this is so weird, but I had a Treasure Planet pencil <laughs> for a long time. And because it was a garbage cheap, you know, right, piece right. of swag pencil. Yeah. And so that is why I'm, I'm pretty confident in this story, although I've not been able to independently verify it. Yeah. Other than having the pencil, it didn't really stand out to me. And again, I got it mixed up with Sinbad. I thought it was the same movie <laughs> where I was like, oh, yeah, Sinbad, the movie where there are pirates in space. <laughs> Sinbad, by the way, totally terrible. Your average piece of DreamWorks garbage. It's super gross out humor. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> but then as a high schooler, I rediscovered this movie. I was sick one day. And just scrolling through, you know, whatever's on the boob tube, as they call it. And I was like, oh, Treasure Planet's on. I'll watch that. And I was kind of blown away. I was like, wow, this is like a really cool movie. This is a Disney movie, but it's like also an action adventure. And one thing, you know, our listeners have to understand about me. Pirates are pretty much my favorite anything of anything. You had at least two pirate birthday parties, didn't you? Yes. And your brother had them to, you know. Where I'm sitting, from where I'm sitting, I can see no fewer than eight pieces of Monkey Island swag in this room. (laughs) Uh, Multiple pieces of Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. Uh, We talked about those on the mailbag episodes. And of course, the original Treasure Island book. Mm -hmm. Pretty much anything with pirates. And there's not a lot. There's surprisingly not a lot of great pirate stuff (laughs) or even just pirate stuff in general, which means a smaller percentage of it is great. The only thing I could maybe love as much as pirates is science fiction. So anytime there's space pirates, it's going to get like an extra two stars from me, even if it's unwatchable. Because those are just like my favorite things together. Mm-hmm. And so I watched this in high school. I fell in love with the space piratiness of it all. And to be totally honest, I can definitely see with retrospect, like I was an angsty, angry teenager. <laughs> so even though I would have said at the time, yeah, the main character is not the most interesting part of this movie or yeah, he's not that good. I definitely was kind of into it. I was definitely kind he of was like relating. I was definitely like, oh, an angsty teen. Uh, I too am. I too wear a lot of black, uh, and will eventually start having a ponytail. Yes. Was it because of this movie? No. But who can say? But no, no, it wasn't. Well, you don't have that kind of weird ponytail. No, he's got like an undercut with a ponytail sticking out. It looks terrible. With a little, with a little like kind of a cue sort of a ponytail, like a very skinny. Yep. With a little tuft at the end. Terrible two thousands fashion. <laughs> and he's got like a a. a like dog on his head, like a brute. He's got like a loaf of bread on his head. (laughs) Terrible hairstyle. Well, his mom's hair looks like it's dripping off her head. So, you know, I guess he got weird hair from her. So for a long time, I was like, this is my full stop favorite Disney movie. I watched it so much. I have such a funny memory involving Grandma Becky because she and Grandpa Lee bought me the like special edition Blu-ray of this for 
whatever, some gift giving thing. Mm-hmm. And we were on like a, a, I believe it was a Skype call in those days with them as we opened it. And I was like, oh, Treasure Planet, I love this movie so much. And Grand Becky, who loves every Disney movie, who recommended Dinosaur to us <laughs> on the podcast, or at least doesn't hate Dinosaur. Yeah. I was talking about like, oh, I love this so much. It's my favorite Disney movie. She was like, Treasure Planet. <laughs> she was like, even we don't like that one. <laughs> And I was like, no, it's good. You just don't understand. <laughs> I'm a boy. No, I'm a man. But um, <laughs> yeah, it really it really did a number on me. <laughs> My then and current girlfriend got me this wonderful set of Disney pins. Track this down on eBay that has had every treasure planet character in it. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. And I put those on my backpack and wore them to school. Lost all of them except Morph. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have Silver, I don't have Ben, I don't have Hawkins or Amelia or Doppler. I got just Morph. <laughs> That's all I yeah. have. I really regret that. But then she's lost presence of mind dating for a long time. You lose stuff. So like this, this movie was a big deal to my adolescence. And then I watch it again as an adult. I actually watched this when I moved into my own place post-college I had some friends over and of course I have all my movies out and Mm -hmm. all I ever want to do is watch a movie and they're like, let's watch Treasure Planet. And we watched it and I like I realized it wasn't as good. (laughs) I kind of was like, oh, yeah, like I can see the problems with this now more than I could before. I see that it's not a perfect movie, but I still love it. It still Mm -hmm. looks so beyond incredible and I still love the soundtrack. And again, I just like imprinted this thing on my brain. Yep. It means a lot to me, even though I can definitely see the seams now and agree that uh, Jim Hawkins is a real problem. <laughs> when I was talking previously about like Musker and Clements having a bit of a protagonist problem where I think they don't really have an interest in the protagonists of their movies. <laughs> this is kind of what I was thinking of. I was like, <laughs> you know, that's that's really going to be true in Treasure Planet, where every other part of the movie is more fun and interesting. (laughs) But I love it still. It's definitely not my favorite Disney movie. And I feel like this one, Atlantis, as we said, it definitely has its cult following and it's a sizable one. This one is like 12 people. (laughs) There are definitely people who love this movie like there are with every Disney movie. We've heard from some dinosaur fans who were very nice and actually could take a joke. So no beef, no beef with any dinosaur fans so far. Mm -hmm. But like this one, such a small number of people even remember this one. Such a smaller number of people like it. But (laughs) I do know people who do. There are dozens of us. Dozens. (laughs) I mean, some people saw it and loved it. (laughs) Yep, but uh, I think you really had to be in the right age group. I don't know that you're going to come to this movie as an adult and fall in love with it as much, although it really doesn't get enough appreciation for what a technical achievement it is. Even if you hate everything Mm -hmm. else about it, which is fair, (laughs) it is a feast for the eyed balls. (laughs) So let's go ahead and talk about this movie. Let's talk, in fact, about the book, which, as I said, I've loved for as long as I can remember, because like Treasure Island, for anyone who doesn't know, written, of course, by Robert Louis Stevenson, published in 1883. It's it's sort of it was published in serialized chapters starting in 81, but whatever. This really is the prototype for like all pirate stuff, even today. Mm -hmm. 
pirates with peg legs, pirates with parrots, X's on treasure maps, like it. Yeah. And so, so much more, you know, really the conception of the modern, like fictional pirate, which is the fun kind. Yes. (laughs) All comes from this book. Except for the accent, which still sort of is related to the book. Sort of. Mainly comes from the 1950 Disney Treasure Island movie based on the book. Right. And so this book it was written again by Robert Louis Stevenson, who I like. I've been preparing for this episode for weeks. I did such a deep dive. I reread the book. I specifically bought a copy of the book with the N.C. Wyeth illustrations. We'll talk about why those were important. Yep. And I learned a lot about Robert Louis Stevenson, who we don't have time to talk about, but he is a fascinating guy. Yep. A Scottish author, a proud socialist, basically a guy who hated all authority <laughs> of any kind, um, did a bunch of traveling, worked with the indigenous people of the Samoa, so much so that he was seen as like an honorary member of that nation, uh, wrote his own epitaph, <laughs> like uh, just fascinating, fascinating individual, really cool guy. Kind of just looked like Adam Driver with a mustache. (laughs) And may I say, a great mustache. (laughs) But he set out to write Treasure Island uh, in one of the, you know, 400,000 books he wrote because he was insanely prolific. He was. And he wrote about why he was writing it to a friend in 1881 in August. He said, if this don't fetch the kids, why they have gone rotten since my day. <laughs> Will you be surprised to learn that it is about buccaneers, that it begins in the Admiral Benbow public house on the Devon coast, that it's all about a map and a treasure and a mutiny and a derelict ship? It's quite silly and horrid fun. What I want is the best book about buccaneers that can be had. <laughs> Which I just love because, like, he starts talking about, you know, the the rotten kids or whatever. I feel like today, you know, and always throughout literally all of known history, you've had the old people complaining about kids these days and their shorter attention spans. I love that he was like, kids these days are so hard to entertain. Challenge accepted. I'm going to write a book that's so awesome. They can't help but resist it. And he totally succeeded, not only in his own time, but even to this day, Not only are people still enchanted by the book, which, again, I just reread, really holds up, really fun and propulsive. But like, you know, did your kids grow up watching like Jake and the Neverland Pirates? Because they have all the stuff he invented in this book. Did you know, like so much children's fiction is still piratey and it it all comes. He invented a new genre. (laughs) Robert Louis Stevenson rules. And his book, you know, much like this movie It's notable, I think, rereading it. It has no interest in Jim Hawkins, (laughs) who is really just a first person point of view character through which children can experience this story. What it's very clearly way more interested in, what gets way more time are all of the cool pirates. And they all have a gimmick, you know, blind pew, Billy Bones, of course, Long John Silver, who is the most interesting of them all and surprisingly kind of lovable. Um, But you never really know what side he's on. And that's clearly what he's interested in. And then also Jim Hawkins is there walking (laughs) around. It's more satirical, definitely, than I realized as a kid, because you kind of have to read about the time and know that Stevenson was this like 
anti-authority guy. Again, he's mm-hmm. Scottish, so you can guess how he felt about the English. Yeah. So, you know, when the squire and the doctor and Jim in this book are all like, you know, raising the the British flag and they're so obsessed with like England and everything, you can tell he's like, he's making fun of them. Yeah, very tongue in cheek. <laughs> yes, uh, which is a really interesting wrinkle. It is, it's a very complex book, in terms of some of the themes and some of the stuff it's trying to get at, despite being a pretty simple action story as well. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we've already talked about the origin of this movie several times because this was Ron Clements and John Musker's passion project for a long time, pitched in the first gong show. Eventually, they basically extorted Michael Eisner into letting them make it. Yep, if you don't let us make it, we're going to go somewhere else. Yep, we're going to go to DreamWorks and we're probably going to work on Simbad. <laughs> and, of course, they finally got to do it. They spent four and a half years. They had thousands of crew members, 400 artists and computer artists, 150 musicians, 200 technology people. They spent so much money on this. Oh, they did. It's just Insane. Watching the making of uh, that's on my special edition Blu-ray, which, of course, all of which I'd watched before. (laughs) (laughs) So I really can't state enough how obsessed I was with this movie for a time. But I watch them all again. And it's like they built, you know, tons of physical clay models for almost every pose for Silver so that they could, you know, pose him and and get the movements right and the shape right. Mm -hmm. And... You know, one of the things they really wanted to do was mimic the look of the classic illustrations, especially the most famous illustrations of Treasure Planet, which are by N.C. Wyeth, uh, who was a great illustrator from the Brandywine School. And all over these special features, they talk about the Brandywine School, which was the specific style of illustration that sprung up uh, in the mid 1850s to early 1900s near the Brandywine River, hence the name, led by a guy named Howard Pyle, who basically wanted to create whole cloth and American style of illustration (laughs) because he was like, well, there's all these great European styles. America should have its own style. We'll invent a style of art. And I'm not enough of an art expert to really understand all the particulars of what kind of makes the Brandywine School style what it is, but it's frequently oil paintings. It uses very warm palettes and often kind of the same palettes for a scene. A lot of colors you wouldn't necessarily see today. One thing that I thought was interesting was use of blacks and browns, which they very much carry into this movie. Mm-hmm. In fact, Silver's outfit is fully just the N.C. Wyeth illustrations, plus robot arm, of course. Right. And again, like one of the things they do is that every particular scene will be colored a certain color and it'll use the same palette and the same like couple of colors. And so there's a lot of scenes in this movie where in order to imitate that, they had to like change the colors of the characters because they're like, everything in this scene should be tinted yellow. Everything in this scene should be tinted green. So, you know, just in the 2D animation alone, it's so much. And then you get, of course, the extensive and awesome use of CGI. Right. Which 
They're not only trying to do, you know, CGI characters for the first time, a full CGI character in Ben. They're trying to do CGI appendages with silver. They're trying to do CGI locations, which we haven't used this extensively before. Yeah, because they're making all the locations a full 360, right? Yes, they're trying to do all of this while having 2D characters run all over it. Mm -hmm. They're trying to make them as expressive as traditional animation and they're trying to make it match with the Brandywine School of Illustration from the late 1800s. Yeah, I would put this right up there with Sleeping Beauty in that I think these are the two most interesting looking and best looking Disney movies. Sleeping Beauty probably probably gets the edge still, even with all my like nostalgia for this. But not since then have we seen so much work and time put into every single shot and trying to imitate something that you wouldn't normally think of for a movie, right? The tapestries there, these Brandywine school illustrations here. Yeah. And throughout the movie, they had what they called the 70-30 law, which was everything should be 70% traditional and 30% sci-fi. And they not only use these for the visuals, but for the music, for this great, all-time great James Newton Howard soundtrack Absolutely one of my favorite soundtracks. It just gives me goosebumps. It's a good one. Not just one of my favorite James Newton Howard soundtracks, but one of my favorite soundtracks, Full Stop. And it does. It has, you know, these occasional text sounding influences. You can especially hear it in the themes for Ben, which like use a theremin hilariously. Even in some of the other stuff, there's some electric guitar and stuff sneaking in with the orchestra, which sounds very interesting. Yes, but it's this very Celtic and classical style. Otherwise, it's really awesome. There are also two incredibly emo, incredibly (laughs) out of place songs from Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls, a punk band that did not make it out of the <laughs> 2000s <laughs> in any sense. It's definitely like one of my least favorite styles of singing, like through the nose. And it's a it's a singing style that just sounds whiny. So, you know, perfect for Jim. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it it kind of is, unfortunately, in a bad way. I frankly love both of these songs just because I love this movie. I've heard yeah. them so much. Love is a strong word, but it's like. I've grown affection for them. Right. That that's the joke we were doing in the beginning is that I love what I wholly acknowledge (laughs) is this terrible song. I'm still here. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, most of what's interesting about this movie is the art style. But as I say, Jim Hawkins is a total POV character. So you kind of have to flesh him out more for a movie. Right. Because that doesn't work as well in a movie as it does in a book where you could just be like, whatever, he's the narrator. It's fine. Obviously, that device doesn't exist in the same way. So (laughs) it was apparently Musker and Clement's idea specifically to make Jim an angsty teen, (laughs) a little (laughs) troubled kid who doesn't know who he is, as they put it, but an angsty, edgy teenager. I think they're also much like so many other creators in the experimental era. They're like, you know, how can we push the limits of Disney? Like, how can we do something you've never seen before? We've never had like a teen, like a troubled teen. Yeah. Apparently, Terry Rossio, who's one of the screenwriters, we've talked about him before. Good screenwriter, bad person. Mm -hmm. He claims, and who knows, because he claimed this after the film flopped, so maybe he's just trying to deflect. He claims that... 
they did this like against the other two screenwriters uh, will <laughs> that Clements and Musker were like, no, he needs to be an angsty teen. And they're like, I don't think that's a good idea. But that, of course, is what they're. Big ideas. Otherwise, it's a fairly straightforward adaptation of the book. Yep. Surprisingly, despite (laughs) the fact that it's set in space. It's true. They change quite a bit of the ending uh, in a way that I actually think makes sense for the movie, the third act. Mm -hmm. And they make silver. They kind of make subtext text with silver where, you know, he's kind of a surrogate father figure to Jim in the book. Mm -hmm. But again, it's like, but is he really... Like, uh, the question throughout the book that's not even resolved at the end is, does Silver actually like Jim or does he just switch sides whenever a different side is winning? Yeah. With this, they make it a little more explicit where, yes, he likes Jim. Yes, he becomes a surrogate father figure to him. They have a nicer relationship, which I actually like it. I think that's a good idea and a good choice. I think most of this movie's ideas are good. They're not always executed well. I actually think you could do something with teenage Jim Hawkins and with like, his father's left him and that's why he clings on to silver, but they don't execute it. It doesn't feel like a fully realized idea. It doesn't feel like he's mad at a specific thing. I wanted to ask you in the book, is there a scene towards the end where silver chooses to spare Jim's life or to save his life or anything like that? Not really. Not in the same way. No. Well, cause I mean, there's a, there's a scene like that in the, the, the Disney live action movie too. Um, And it's been a long enough time since I've read the book. I couldn't remember the specifics. So I wondered, is there any sort of scene where he basically chooses not to kill Jim? (laughs) Not in a way where it's like he is deliberately making a choice not to kill Jim. Okay. There is some of the other pirates want to kill him. And he says, no, we need Jim to lead us to the treasure. Right, right. But they actually do need him to lead them to the treasure. So... There is never that type of moment like there is in either of these movies. It is always kept very ambiguous, uh, which, you know, is is a thing Stevenson liked to do. It's true. Again, they spend so much time working on it. It costs so much money and then it bombed. I mean, pirates movie pirate movies famously don't do very well in general, although the one, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies that made a ton of money are around the corner. But it also just kind of feels like, well, this movie's so expensive that it would have to be a huge success. And it should be noted that, like, especially compared to the Renaissance era where they were making crazy money, more options are emerging. Mm-hmm. There are the Pixar films now, which are kind of Disney, but not the same. There are the DreamWorks films now. Of course, Shrek has has won its Oscar and, and ruined the world. <laughs> uh, death comes for us all. But there's also more Japanese films getting uh, coming over to the West. I read some reviews, some contemporary reviews from when this movie came out, comparing it to Spirited Away, a movie it it never really could possibly <laughs> stand up against, you know? Yeah, but which came out in the U.S. that same year. Right. So, you know, Disney's not the only game in town. And this movie didn't do enough to sell people. I think Treasure Island is not something, you know, it's something people know, but it's not something where people are like, oh, Treasure Island, I have to. And I think it came out like around the same time as whatever the newest Harry Potter was. It did. That's right. And of course, everybody was crazy for Harry Potter and still is. (laughs) Yes, as well as the new Bond movie, Die Another Day, which people yeah. hate. 
I actually like that one. I think it's fun <laughs> and silly. But yeah, this this thing was just it was a huge failure. And it's a shame because, again, you know, as I've said, like this movie and Atlantis, whether or not you like either, you know, we clearly don't think either one is totally successful. Yeah. They were really doing incredible, exciting, interesting things with animation, with 2D animation. And this one's really beautiful. Yes. Um, and with the mix of 2D and 3D and doing things with the technology that no one else has ever tried to do since, really. And it really holds up. I was wondering if the CG was going to look really bad in this movie. Like you'd see Silver and be like, well, his 2D animation parts look OK, but his 3D animation parts just don't work anymore. But actually, the whole thing still looks pretty good. They do it really intelligently as well, where a lot mm -hmm. of the times the CG stuff is the sci-fi stuff. So right. if it looks a little out of place, you're like, well, it's supposed to. Like, I yeah. think the CG that looks the most CG in this movie are the, like, space whales, mm -hmm. to be honest. But you're like, well, what's a space whale supposed to look like? You know, right. this is, Jim is seeing something that is, unlike anything he's ever seen before, it actually works mm -hmm. for it to look unlike anything else you've seen in this movie. It actually doesn't take you out of the picture in the way that, like, with Tarzan, you're like, okay, his feet aren't anywhere near that tree. <laughs> That's just yeah. not right. Yeah, and I mean, I just wish Disney would keep making 2D movies. I don't even mind them making CGI movies. I just, you know, kind of wish we could have gotten both. It was, I kind of like this time where Pixar is pushing the limits of 3D and Disney is pushing the limits of 2D and you're getting both. Like, mm -hmm. this is a really cool era. It would be, and even with the stuff that's more CG, more 3D, I feel like there's an intentionality to it that you don't see as much in at least some modern CG movies. I would argue a lot of uh, Disney's current CG movies because it's like, this is going to be so expensive <laughs> and so difficult. We need to animate it in 2D, build a 3D model like in physical space out of clay, then put that into a computer, then like, <laughs> you know, so you have to be really, really intentional. And there isn't a single scene in this that that isn't that intentional. One of the funniest things in the bonus features, I'll just end on this before you get to the cast, is the guy who's making the clay models. He's making the first ever clay model of silver mm -hmm. that actually will have the arm and leg and eye pieces that are basically 3D printed. It's a rudimentary type of 3D printing, but they actually are printing it from the 3D model in the computer. Yeah. And he's working really hard to get those, you know, onto the model and to make it all look perfect. And he shows it to Musker and Clements and they walk into the room and they joke, wasn't the arm on the left side? <laughs> Wasn't his left arm? And they're like, no, we're kidding. This looks amazing. But I just literally he spends days on it. The whole bonus feature is just him making this one model and all the work that went into that. And I think everyone in the room laughed. I think it's genuinely funny when they walk in. They're like, wasn't it the left arm? <laughs> so, you know, that's how much effort it took to get one pose for Silver. Gotta have those maquettes. Tell us about the cast of this movie. Did you see the like instruction that the casting director was given? I don't recall. What was that? So in addition to Musker and Clements, the other guy who's really 
kind of the the auteur of this movie, such as it is for a Disney movie, is the, the producer, Ray Conley. This was his first movie as a full producer. He would go on to also work on Tangled and Big Hero 6. He was really involved. Uh-huh. He told the casting director that they didn't want voice actors. Okay. They specifically wanted regular actors uh, regular actors. That's a weird way to put it. But you know what I mean? Non-voice actors. They wanted people using their regular voices as opposed to doing a voice. Right. They wanted naturalistic performances <laughs> to fit this very kind of naturalistically colored movie. Interesting. Don't know that I agree that it was a great choice, but that's yeah, okay. hit hit and miss to be sure. Yeah. We're about to we're going to start with a miss. Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Jim Hawkins. He's a good actor. I agree. I don't know that he's a good voice actor. I agree. He's in Inception, of course, and The Dark Knight Rises and Looper. Yes, love Looper. He's going to be Jiminy Cricket in the new Pinocchio Delarm. Did you see that? (laughs) No, I didn't. (laughs) So there he is going to do another voice. He's done several voices. He's the in the English dub of The Wind Rises. He's the main character and he's awful. I'm (laughs) sorry. I really like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I really like him as an actor. Mm -hmm. I love all those movies you just said, and I love his performances in them. I think Looper especially is a really, really interesting special performance, as well as the other Ryan Johnson movie, Brick. Mm -hmm. He's actually in every Ryan Johnson movie, but it's cameos other than those two. I'm not kidding. He's in Last Jedi as a voice. It's funny. (laughs) But he's a bad voice actor. (laughs) Everything I've seen him voice act in, I've been unimpressed because he has a very neutral voice. Yeah. You know, he's just like, I am Joseph Gordon Levitt. Like, I think Mm -hmm. what's interesting about him is his face and his like body language and how, you know, the body can be saying so much while he keeps his voice very steady and very deadpan. Mm -hmm. When, When it's just a voice acting character that sucks. Uh, he was also pretty young when this movie was made, I believe. I think it was in his early 20s, 2021-ish. Actually, I don't know when they recorded his voice. He might have been late teens. Probably. <laughs> Knowing how long they worked on this movie. He was probably late teens. Probably. It seemed like they had the voice acting done pretty early. And of course, he was a child actor. I mean, kind of a late teenage actor, but seen as a child actor first uh, in Third Rock from the Sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what they were going for. They're like, oh, a teenage actor of the now. But I don't, I don't <laughs> think he's very good. They, there was a different child actor, Austin Majors, doing the voice of young Jim. That's Treasure Planet. <laughs> How did he vanish without a trace? <laughs> yeah, whatever. He's fine. He's I mean, he's kind of better than JGL. I hate to say it. <laughs> Lori Metcalf as Sarah Hawkins. Jim's mother. She's also Andy's mom in Toy Story. So I was wondering if it was like, get us a mom voice. We need a mom. (laughs) She was also on Third Rock from the Sun. Oh, there you go. Was she the mom? I would assume I've never seen an episode of it. I've heard it's good. Neither have I. Uh, It does not look like she was the mom. All right. I know she does a lot of the uh, special features on your DVD or Blu-ray or... Yes. She, like, does the voiceover and sometimes she's actually there on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't think she had enough work to do. <laughs> <laughs> David Hyde Pierce as Dr. Delbert Doppler, who is a dog. Gotta have all the Ds. Yes. <laughs> who is a combination of two characters from the book. There's a right. doctor who is very serious and very stoic and professional. And there is a squire 
who's kind of a kind of an idiot. He easily gets carried away again. He is the most British, very tellingly so, and the most imperialist. And they kind of combine those into one character, which makes sense. Yeah, it works. And he, of course, was also the voice of Slim in A Bug's Life. Delivering the immortal line, I'm the only stick with eyeballs. Exactly. It's the same voice. He was on Frasier for, he was very popular for that. He's also in that Hercules TV series, like so many of these other voice actors. He was the voice of Daedalus. Yep, I think I saw that, but I I didn't watch that episode specifically. Brian Murray as John Silver, who is only ever called Silver in the movie, but apparently in the credits they list him as John Silver, so whatever. Yeah, he's only ever called Silver. I don't I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah. Because it's funny because he's a cyborg, he's Silver. Yeah. And of course, in the book, it's Long John Silver because he's tall. Right. <laughs> I haven't actually seen anything he's been in. No, he hasn't really done many movies. He's really a stage actor who they just got for this because they thought he had a really good voice. <laughs> I think he is the best performance in this movie. I think he is yeah. awesome. Like when I was he does a good job. And of course, I think Silver's the most interesting character. And like when I was reading the book, I was hearing Brian Murray's voice in my head, <laughs> obviously, because I've seen this movie a lot. But I also think like his delivery lines up perfectly with the book as well. Like his specific, you know, very rich, very Scottish. I can't do a Scottish accent at all. But, you know, when he's like, oh, there's a whole slew of cyborgs roaming this port. Like he's so he's always on top of it. He's always confident. But there's an edge to it. He's hiding something. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great voice acting performance. Yep. Dane A. Davis as Morph. He's mostly a sound editor, a designer. So he just did a Silly little voice and sounds. And I was astonished that this wasn't Welker. I thought for <laughs> sure this was Welker. Well, again, they're trying not to have voice actors. So I guess somehow they managed to get through this whole movie without Welker. As far as we know. Pretty crazy. He does a lot of uncredited stuff, so who knows, but... Maybe he was space whales. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they just (laughs) used the dinosaur sounds. (laughs) (laughs) Emma Thompson as Captain Amelia. I first saw her in Sense and Sensibility as Eleanor, where she does a great job. You know that she also, like wrote that movie. That was her project. Yes, yes, that was her. But she's great in it as an actor as well. That's the first thing I remember seeing her in. I have seen some movies that came out before that, but I think I saw them later. (laughs) She's probably in my second favorite Much Ado About Nothing. Mm -hmm. I've seen so many versions, but she's great in that. I mean, she's good in everything I've seen her in. Nanny McPhee, which I think she also wrote that one, didn't she? Or she was like, very instrumental in that one coming about, I believe. She's actually written a few scripts, so. And of course, she's been in several Disney things, Saving Mr. Banks as Pamela Travers. She's the voice of Mrs. Potts in the Beauty and the Beast Alarm. She's in two Alarms because she's also in Cruella. Yeah, I was. that was the next thing I was going to say. She's in that new Cruella movie. <laughs> and she's the queen in Brave. Yes. Whose name is also Eleanor. Yes. <laughs> Emma Thompson rules. She is yep. a, truly a great actor. Yep. And a good voice actor. Yeah, she she composes herself very well in this. Roscoe Lee Brown as Mr. Arrow, 
who we previously heard as Francis and Oliver and company. Mm -hmm. Who could remember? I mean, forget. (laughs) As well, the mean dogs, right? (laughs) No. Wait, really? He's part of the company. Oh, yeah. No, Francis. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. This time I didn't go. Wasn't he in Oliver and Company? But when we were watching Oliver and Company, I was like, isn't that Mr. Arrow? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. He did a bunch of TV. As he got older, he got did a lot more voice acting. So he kind of, you know, mixes it, mixes it up. Mr. Arrow is one of the bigger changes from the book. Uh, in the book, he is another lousy crew member hired by the dumb squire who's male in the book, but otherwise a very similar character doesn't like it all. And he is not killed by the crew. Exactly. He drinks himself to death. <laughs> On the voyage. So uh, I changed some of that for the Disney movie. Yeah. Tony J is the narrator. So, you know, Frollo from Hunchback and Monsieur Dark from Beauty and the Beast. Um, coming back to do his narrating of the, the picture book at the beginning. Yes. Patrick McGowan as Billy Bones. It's a very minor role, but I've seen Patrick McGowan in several things. He was a, a longtime actor. I watched the old TV show, The Prisoner from the 60s with my dad when it would come on PBS. That was one of the shows that he and I would just watch together. And he's King Edward in Braveheart. This was actually his last role. He didn't die right after this. He was alive a few more years, but this was his last role. He's just here to go beware the cyborg. (laughs) Exactly. And he does it well. Martin Short as Ben, the bioelectrical navigator. (laughs) (laughs) He's a bit much for this movie. He's a good actor, but sometimes he is too extreme. Good voice actor, too. Uh, I believe he'd already been in Prince of Egypt with Steve Martin. Yeah. Uh, They're the two, whatever, playing with the big boys guys. (laughs) They're the two priests of Egypt. They're a lot of fun in that because... He he's a heavy spice. And for Ben, they just so fell in love with his performance of the character and they just let him riff whatever he wanted. And as we've said in the past, that doesn't always work so well. Mm -hmm. I think it's fine to turn Ben into a comic relief character because you have to shorten it for a movie. Yeah. Ben in the book is not exactly funny, but he's an amnesiac. He's a former member of Flint's crew. There's a lot of parallels. I think it's fine to just make him funny. The problem is... I don't think Ben's very funny. Yeah. I don't ever remember laughing at Ben. Like, I think he's a funny concept and he doesn't like annoy me. He's not taking me out of the movie, but there were no laughs when we were watching this this time. We were all just kind of like, okay, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Martin Short, of course, is an inner space. The Three Amigos, a bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. He's a stand up comedian. Again, it's like, hey. Yeah. Guess who's trying to recapture the Aladdin magic again? (laughs) It's the directors of Aladdin. We've got Michael Wincott as Scroop, whose voice I actually recognized this guy's voice because it's so distinctive. He's Guy of Gisborne and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He's Rochefort in The Three Musketeers, the Disney one. And he's Elgin in Alien Resurrection. He just has that voice that's so gravelly and deep. And I was like, I bet that's that guy. I can never remember his his name, that actor. But I'm like, see that guy who was in Robin Hood? Oh, yep, there he is. That's Mr. The one. Arrow's line was not secured. 
I always thought it was perfect that in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, they they pretend like he's had his throat partially cut. And that's why he talks <laughs> like that. Right. And so that's why it's all his voice is always so memorable. Right. No, this is just my vibe. <laughs> exactly. So Treasure Planet, it's a very kind of romantic opening with this lovely view of space and the yeah. James Newton Howard coming in with the, you know, kind of sweet fiddle mm-hmm. and... Tony J, I love this narration on the clearest of nights. <laughs> you know, with the Ethereum. The Ethereum is a co- winds of the Ethereum. Yes. The Ethereum is because they're like, well, how do we animate all the cool, like running all over the ship and doing ship stuff in space where they can't breathe? And they're like, you can breathe in space in this movie. Done. So basically, this movie. I feel like has a very steampunk vibe, even though they wouldn't have described it like that. I think this was kind of before steampunk had become such a big mainstream thing. But that's really the vibe that they're going for here. And uh, even there's a lot of steampunk sci fi type stories where they go with the what people back in the 18, 17, 1600s, whatever, imagined space to be they didn't imagine it to be empty in a vacuum they thought there was um ether so that you could actually you know travel in ships like this potentially if you could get you know up into the air so they go with that that old-fashioned notion of the ethereum where space is full of ether right i don't know how to it's it's air whatever (laughs) it's it's so we can have ships in space and it looks very cool It does look very cool. And that's one thing I appreciate about this movie is that for the most part, it doesn't overplay its hand with the sci-fi stuff. There are a couple points where it does and and it's annoying. (laughs) Uh, But for the most part, it just kind of trusts that like we can have all this sort of in the background and you'll just get it. You'll just accept that they're all breathing in space. It will say Ethereum one time. There's no like, well, as you know, the Ethereum. The air that allow and there's exactly. I'm glad they don't go into detail. That would be too much. Exactly, and like you see the sails light up, you get. I assume that they're solar sails. Yeah, they're solar sails. They're powered by the sun. That's what they're, you know, get air the stars really, and that's what they're getting the the energy from. And again, they never say this. I don't think anyone ever even says the word solar sails. They're just talking about sails. But it's like you get it. Look at it. Yeah. Figure it out. You're watching Treasure Planet. <laughs> but this opening again, the the beauty of it and the Tony J narration like this is what it felt like to be a little kid who loved pirates. This is why pirates always seem so cool and like stuff on boats always seem so cool. Maybe especially if you grew up in Kansas, you didn't go on a boat till you were 25. <laughs> like uh, you didn't go on a boat on the sea until you were 25. Right. Yeah. But yeah, the great cargo ships were pursued by pirates. We meet Captain Nathaniel Flint. He's a cool design. The book itself is like, I mean, it's basically a movie. It's what you call a movie. Right. It's true. He's holding a book, but it basically is like a projector. Yes. (laughs) I like how it's got like the four little projectors in the four corners of the book. So it's, you know, 3D, not just a flat movie screen. And the cool thing about Flint is that he would get the... He well, he had the loot of a thousand worlds. He hid it all on Treasure Planet. Nobody knows where it is. And every time he raided a ship, he would vanish without a trace. And this is, of course, being intercut with some nice mom and son stuff. 
Here we can have our first mom status. Sarah Hawkins loves her baby boy. <laughs> she's a pretty good mom, I think. She's a she's a fairly interesting character. Yeah, single mother. This is kind of interesting because if you've watched this movie as many times as I have, this is set before his dad leaves. But maybe he's away on a journey or something because he does seem to be like a sailor, maybe. Yeah, or, you know, maybe he's out drinking. Like, we really don't know too much. We don't know. Yeah. Maybe he's just not in this room right now. And if you do the math, he's got to be like three. (laughs) I guess that's true. (laughs) Which I was like, now, wait a minute. (laughs) He's a little advanced for three. (laughs) I think he's supposed to be like. 16 or something. I think he's maybe an older He's supposed to be 15 later in the movie, and we're about to get to 12 years later. Then you're right. And so we have uh, all these cool tricks with the solar sail while we're kind of getting our opening titles and we're getting this great theme. Yep, he's using his solar surfer. Yes, there's this very cool techie, like, I don't know if it's a junkyard or a mining operation or what, but it's a super cool set that they just, you know, had to design and build in 3D just for this one, like, moment where he flies through the wheel. I suspect it's supposed to be, like, a mining operation because I think originally the planet they're on, Montressor, was supposed to be a mining planet. Yeah. All the deleted scenes, which, again, I rewatched, are pretty much from the beginning of this movie and the end. Yeah. Where they tried to cut. They had a lot more stuff with Jim in the beginning, which kind of would have made him made you get who he is as a character a little more. But on the other hand, I understand they're like, we got to keep this trim. It's an adventure movie. We're having fun here. Yeah. And then, of course, the get to the adventure, the ending, they just cut down to a musical montage, which I think is exactly right. Right. I agree. So, yeah, mom is the innkeeper at the Benbow Inn. Yep. With all of its horrible customers. (laughs) Very rude. Obviously, somebody who has been a server or worked in customer service planned out what all these customers <laughs> are going to be like. Including Delbert, by the way. He's he's also. It's true. Dr. Delbert Doppler. Who encounters a weird alien kid. Jim and his mom, the only humans in this movie. It's true. Everybody else is some kind of an alien. And sometimes you can be like, well, you know, Dr. Doppler, he's kind of a dog type alien, sort of. And some of them are like kind of frog type aliens. And some of them are just like kind of a weird type alien, you know. I don't even think I could say what sort like silver is. No. You know, he's he's potato alien. alien. (laughs) (laughs) Blobby, but with weird ears. Yes. And. We find out that Jim, he's kind of a troubled teen. The robot cops bring him in. I love these robot cops. I love the robot cops. They're so funny. The design is so cool. And I love the voices. Take care now. Let's motor. <laughs> and they're yeah. like little tanks. Uh, and I, they're also CG. I don't know. They're they're not in this movie. They're funny. They're, they're pretty. They're pretty yep. cool. But yeah. But Jim is kind of like brought back because he was violating his parole. Or his probation. Solar surfing where he shouldn't have been. Yeah. He's supposed to be staying at home. Yep. And he he will be thrown in juvenile hall. He's violating his probation. All this stuff. Yeah. So we do have a dad status here. He's left. Yes. He has. They'll make it more explicit later. But basically, he has abandoned his family. And I will say, you mentioned when we... Watch this together. And that was when I was a high schooler and I was obsessed with this movie. And 
to be honest, you know, I think like many people when I was in high school, you know, I had my rebellious phase like everyone else. And we definitely drifted farther apart for a time. And my memory is that you said to me, like, I want to watch this movie with you because you loved it so much. And then so we were watching it together. Uh And then it's this movie about a mom failing to connect with her angsty teenage son. I remember there being a weird energy in the room, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which we've clearly, you know, whatever. I grew up, we moved past it. We both worked, you know through that but it's entirely possible that some of that was just your interpretation too (laughs) that as well that as well again the problem with jim i think is that like obviously his dad's left him that's the main source of his angst but he's also just kind of omnidirectional angsty (laughs) which is somewhat true of a teenager but not the most fun for a movie protagonist yeah it's always difficult when a movie or a book really gets that angsty teenager attitude really well because it doesn't appeal to anyone except (laughs) angsty teenagers. (laughs) But like here, he's not just talking about like his dad or whatever. He's talking about like, what future? I don't have a future. And it's like, what makes you think that? Like, I don't know. I know. (laughs) In seems pretty cool. You live right next to the spaceport. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, you're apparently quite intelligent you could go to higher education you know there, do we not have some kind of solar sail pod racing or what <laughs> that right. you could be a part of because you're very good at it as much as i don't want to linger in the beginning part but want to get to the adventure i do feel like if he's going to be this sullen teenager especially so much at the beginning there should be a little more explanation besides he needs a father figure in his life. I mean, maybe that's enough, but you feel like if he's not feeling like he's going anywhere, maybe there should be more of a reason why. And you know what? I know plenty of people raised by single parents who turned out just fine. You know what I mean? Like having right, your father right. leave and, is horrible, but is, it's not going to like agreed. mess you up for life. And of course, most teenagers are going to go through a rebellious, angsty phase because that is right. part of the growing up separating from your parents and going off to live on your own. You actually have to go through that to to do that. That's just part of life. But yeah, you just kind of feel like he needs a little bit more background or a little less pout. (laughs) Which, again, this could be more of a story of like, I think it has shades of this, but doesn't really commit to it where it's like, you know, he goes to space you know, he's put to work. Yeah. He's like, there's no there's no screwing around in space like you have, uh, uh, you know, on a ship and he he gets put to work. And, you know, like like kids who, who join the army or do something to get some discipline in their life and it helps him straighten out. But that doesn't really seem to be what they're going for exactly. Although there's elements. Of, it's just yeah. again, Jim is not specific enough. We talked last week about Lilo and Stitch and how Lilo is so specifically a kid with childhood PTSD. And we talked about how they like focus tested every scene with her to be like, okay, she needs to be mean and kind of bratty, but we can't lose the audience here. They clearly didn't do that as much with this character. And let's be honest, they couldn't because you're not reanimating treasure planet. (laughs) True. This was not done on the cheap. Again, they had to like pre-visualize and plan out everything so much that, you know, 
I yeah. I didn't hear anything about any like focus testing or screenings. Versus Lilo and Stitch is pretty cheap. You know, it's a it's a great looking movie in its own right, but pretty easy to redo stuff as you need to. Yeah, it's a different style. So, you know, on to the story. Billy Bones crash lands by the inn. He's kind of a weird turtley creature. Salamander, they'll say later. I agree with you. He looks turtley, but they they call him the salamander. And yeah, he's he, uh, beware the cyborg. Here's a here's a gold ball. Your inn is on fire. <laughs> well, your inn is on fire because of the uh, pirates who are attacking it, trying to get the gold sphere from Billy Bones, who dies. Doesn't he just die? Yeah. That he doesn't get killed by the pirates. No, he just, he's yes. he's died in the crash, basically. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of cool Billy Bones stuff that gets cut, but I think it's fine because you got to make a movie here. Yep, yep. So they burn the inn. They're at Delbert Doppler's house, which is full of books. Yep. To a hilarious degree. And Jim figures out the map. We figure out it's a map to Treasure Planet. And Delbert is like, let's go. <laughs> I'm going to finance this expedition. Jim's going to come with me because <laughs> which is, I think, kind of how it goes in the book anyway. Like, oh, yeah, Jim got the map. So, you know, we're going to bring him even though he's like eight. There's actually more explanation for it in this because they actually burned the inn down. So it's like Jim will go so that he can bring back treasure to rebuild the inn. Exactly. Versus in the book, it literally is just come boy, we're having an adventure. Like, mm -hmm. There's no explanation other than you want to read a book, don't you? Yeah, you want there to be exciting stuff, huh? I'm going to do what you did in the Emperor's New Groove episode and pick two favorite scenes, <laughs> especially because this first one, it's not even exactly a scene, but this when Delbert raises up his hand to the window and says to the spaceport. Yeah. And then we get the song on the soundtrack that's called to the spaceport and you zoom up to the moon and the moon yeah, looks like a crescent moon is the spaceport and you're flying through the awesome CGI locations. You're seeing all these crazy aliens. It truly does. As the narration at the beginning of this says, it makes one's spirit soar. Like I get <laughs> so such goose flesh every time at this part with the do, 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 I love this moment. And then Delbert's, you know, walks out with his stupid space suit and you're like, oh, that's dumb. And then he's talking to a fart monster and you're like, oh, that's dumb. But the, the so it's not really a scene, but the shot is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ship is called the RLS Legacy, the Robert Louis Stevenson Legacy. Yes, because it's the legacy of Robert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. This is also where uh, keep an eye out for a Musker and Clements cameo. Yeah, Clements is a little red alien and Musker is a cool robot because they got to be there. You give him directions to the docks, the space docks of the spaceport. And we meet Mr. Arrow, who's kind of a big rock man. And hang on, we do have to talk about the fart monster because it's. Oh, the I thought you wanted to go by that faster. <laughs> it's the it's the worst. It's I've never liked this part of the movie. So Mr. Snuff, <laughs> Mr. Zoff, isn't it? Is it Zoff? I thought it was Snuff. The captions in the movie said Zoff, but the Disney Plus captions are questionable. So, well, and this is on the Disney Wiki. So like, <laughs> two questionable the, sources, two <laughs> questionable sources. And some of the characters, it gives like multiple names. Like anyway, so he's a big he's a big slug monster who speaks the language called Flatula. And he's got 
He makes flatulent noises out of his mouth and his arms and his tentacle things on his back. And he's got suction cup feet. And and they also make it clear that he smells bad. Yep. Later when he he farts in Jim's face in this. Yep. I hate this. This is the worst kind <laughs> of dated early 2000s. I mean, I know we're still dealing with this stuff now, but the, the bathroom humor just don't want anyone to think that my love for this movie extends as far as this thing. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, at least he's not a main character. We're going to get several moments with him, but he's not. He's in a lot that he's yeah. in too much, too much, say I. But uh, then there's uh, Mr. Arrow and, and Captain Amelia. Who I wrote at first that I thought she looked kind of squirrel like, but it, I think she's supposed to be cat. Yes, she's a cat. Cats and dogs, you know, living together. Yes, yes. Which I didn't get at first because, you know. I thought she was more like a squirrel. Anyway. And Mr. Arrow, they're like, well, he's supposed to be dependable. He's like the rock she can always lean on. What if he's a rockman? Yeah. Yep, yep. But I like how everything about him is at right angles. Like, you know, even his mouth is like little right angle pieces of rock. Like he's a cube man. It's a cool idea. Yep. And I really like the character of Captain Amelia. I liked you know, when I when I was in high school and everything that she was like a stronger female character than you get in a lot of Disney movies. I think watching the whole thing end to end now, there are more strong female characters in Disney than maybe you give it credit for when you're just thinking about it. Yeah. So it doesn't feel quite as revolutionary knowing, you know, that like there's Mulan and, and whatever else there is. But it's still very cool. It's cool to make this character a woman. Emma Thompson has a lot of fun playing her. She has a very extensive vocabulary. The only thing I don't like about her character design is how a lot of times she seems like she's squinting. For whatever reason, when she doesn't have her eyes wide open, she looks weird to me. (laughs) But yeah, there's just a few design things like that. And like Sarah Hawkins's hair. (laughs) Why does it look drippy? <laughs> it's just supposed to be human hair. But you know what I mean? Where it's got like the weird drip drip like anyway. My sorry. my guess is I think about hair too much in with characters whether they're live action or animated. Probably because I have a lot of hair, so I know how hair works. And there's been many a time where I'm watching a movie going, people with long hair don't behave like that. <laughs> I think partially with the hair, it's kind of the style of some of that Brandywine art style. One of the things that they would do is really try to blend all the elements of a painting together. So there aren't like hard edges and yeah. a lot of like suggestions of things. And, you know, the end of like an arm or a leg just kind of flows into the canvas. So maybe it's that. That's my best guess. I don't know. It's fine. Anyway. We obviously meet Silver. He's the cook and he's the cyborg. And he has uh, Morph, who is basically his parrot, (laughs) but in a sci-fi way. (laughs) Yes, rather than imitating voices, he imitates the whole thing and voices. Exactly, yes. When we meet Silver, there's a ton of cool animation because they're really showing off with his arm and his leg and his eye and everything. But, you know, really one of the big moments is when they're calling attention to him being a cyborg and he's like, oh, this old hunk of hardware. And then there's this cap shot around the kitchen. There's several cap shots around this circular kitchen, but where he's like chopping up the perp and he pretends to chop his hand off and everything. 
one of the things they did to like prove the viability of this, you can find this online, is they did this test footage mm-hmm. with Captain Hook in the part where he's doing the ridiculous hand motions in Peter Pan, where he's like, you will go and bring him to me. And they put CGI hand over that CGI robot hand to to like prove to themselves as much as anyone else that the hands could be expressive. Yeah. And he's such a great design with his hand and his leg and everything like the the way the hand can switch out different attachments and everything. Of course. It's not just like, hey, look, we made the robot part CGI, but it's like, what could we do if we made the robot part CGI that we couldn't easily do with animation? Right. I do like the scene where Jim is told they have to work together and neither Jim nor Silver wants to work together. (laughs) And also Jim is suspicious and he's like, of course, hey, are you the cyborg? I met this salamander down in Montressor and he's like, oh, no, I've never been to Montressor. And it's like you are at what we find out later is called Montressor Spaceport. You are currently at Montressor. <laughs> you were almost certainly hired from the planet of Montressor. Like that's or at least from the spaceport of Montressor, you know. Right. You look down, buddy, because there it is. Look, oh dang, it's Montressor. The <laughs> big thing in the sky. You might have seen it. <laughs> it's a it's a very funny lie. But we go watch the launch. The launch, of course, is also very cool. Very cool. The solar sails. Tons of cap shots, CGI space whales, the Orcus Galacticus, don't you know? <laughs> we also see the artificial gravity being activated, which is important for later. Yeah. Uh, we also are starting to realize this crew's pretty sketchy. Very suspicious. We meet Mr. Scroop. Mr. Scroop. Who is obviously a bad guy because he's a creepy spider and he has a voice like that. He's like a spider, scorpion, red and black, demon eyed. He's his eyes are like weirdly squishy. Yes, he's a really scary character design. He's like he's kind of an I got kids here moment. (laughs) (laughs) And you can tell the crew is planning mutiny. I think they have some conversation we overhear. Yes, yes. It's a it's a funny conversation because Silver's like, you know, now that we're all here. Are you all stark, raven, totally blinking daft? Yes. <laughs> uh, and he says he's going to run the boy too ragged to even think about looking into the mutiny or, or being suspicious. Right. Because the crew is extremely stupid and <laughs> can't hide the fact that they want to do a mutiny for two seconds. This is where I wrote down that I'm not a fan of all the pouty animation on Jim. Yes. He does so many pouty faces where he's just kind of sulking around. And I was like, that that's what I think I was thinking of where I'm like, man, he's so annoying. <laughs> yeah, my my theory is, as I said to you, but I've not yet said on this podcast, is that part of the reason you found him less annoying this go around is because you're not currently dealing with angsty teenagers. <laughs> we'll Entirely see. Entirely possible. Jim and Silver have their first heartfelt conversation here where Jim thanks Silver for saving his life and has a heartfelt conversation about his dad leaving so he couldn't learn to pick his fights. And it ends with a good button, which is Silver talk about all the work he's going to give him. And Jim goes, well, don't do me any favors. And Silver goes, oh, you can be sure of that, boy. You can be sure of that. (laughs) Yes. With the the twinkle in his cyborg eye. And now we Mm -hmm. go to I'm still here. Yep. This is a montage where it mixes 
scenes from Jim's childhood with his work on the ship where he's kind of bonding with Silver. It's a very lengthy montage. We see the scene of his dad leaving and we see them, you know, working together and getting along better. And then when they take out one of the long boats to test it, they really seem to be bonding. And when they're testing that long boat, it's again, it's one of these movies where it's like, well, we can't stop and say it looks great every time. But this looks so good when they're out in space on this long boat. Yep. Chasing this weird blue solar flare or summit. Afterwards, we have a, a conversation I really appreciate, which is talk about like, how'd you get all those prosthetics and stuff? And yeah, Silver says you give up a few things chasing a dream. And, uh, you know, he's hoping it's worth it. And you really this has been a lifelong obsession for him, which is less so in the book, because in the book, he's actually a member of Captain Flint's crew. So it's like Captain Flint has been dead for a short amount of time. We know he has treasure. I would like it. Yeah. Now it's like a 100 years ago, Captain Flint. Yes. Where it's this legend that he's been chasing. Right. Which is a, an interesting add to the character. They get so much right with Silver and it's like they do. You couldn't have put a little of this heat into Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they try then they they really get Jim, you know, bonding with him kind of. He's becoming obviously a surrogate father figure. And you can I like that they did a really good job animating that Silver is kind of. You know, taking him under his wing for real, it seems like. Right. And then there's the supernova scene, which is. Yep. A... I'm picking this scene as my favorite scene. It's a great supernova choice. scene just because it looks so cool. And really, I think my favorite part about the movie is how it looks and the and the soundtrack. So this, I feel like, is one of the best looking scenes. You know what? Those are my two favorite parts, too. You don't need to. Apologize. Like the plot of this is just at its best. It's a good adaptation of a book that's better, you know? Yeah, like that's and at its worst. It's it's fart monster. But yeah, this supernova scene is awesome. This is wholly invented. They don't like run into a storm in the book in this way. Is there a storm at all? I was going to ask about that because I watched the uh, 1950 Disney Treasure Island, trying to see if there was, I wanted to know if there was anything they specifically referenced or called back to in this one, but I didn't notice anything for sure. The book doesn't really have a storm. The journey goes by pretty quick. I mean, there's mention of a storm, but there's not like a storm scene. Okay, so there's not like a storm scene, which is where they lose Mr. Arrow. It is specifically mentioned, if I recall correctly, that when what happens is he gets drunk and the crew is actually giving him like stronger alcohol to get him extra drunk because uh-huh. alcohol has been banned on the ship. But the mutineers have some. So he gets into that and he gets really drunk and he goes over the side in a storm. Oh, OK. But it's not it's not an intentional murder. They just kind of trust like, well, if he's drunk, we can do whatever we want. Like he's not going to be able to run the ship. And if he dies, he dies. In the 1950 movie, Silver intentionally gets him drunk during a storm Mm. and he falls overboard. It's like basically it's an intentional murder, a suicide. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he intentionally gets him drunk during a storm and then, oops, he fell overboard. Like nobody pushes him. 
But he's super drunk. Right. It's <laughs> it's not quite that overt in the book. It's just they're keeping him drunk all the time. And then there's a storm. And then what happens, happens. So in this one, of course, Arrow does not get drunk because he's a very good first officer, first mate, whatever they call him. And they all secure lifelines because they're having to escape this supernova. And uh, Jim actually manages to save Silver's life at one point. And they ask him to secure everybody's lifeline to make sure nobody's going to get pulled away. This supernova then goes black hole. You know, it's a whole thing. And it's an action scene with very clear stakes throughout, like when it's a supernova and then a black hole. And what we have to do at every moment is clear. You know, we have to ride the last Megillah out. And then, of course, Scroop cuts Arrow's lifeline and then, you know, hides the rest of it that he cut off from so that it looks like Jim didn't check it and he just fell off during the escape. And so then Jim feels very guilty and is mad at himself and is like, I'm such a screw up. I can't do anything right. Which if we'd had something earlier in his life where he was a screw up and couldn't do everything right, would would kind of pay off a little stronger. But if he's blaming himself for his dad's death, this maybe kind of makes sense. But I will say this I specifically wrote down because this like I was like, this is the part that that resonated with me because, you know, my dad didn't leave. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very loving man. He's still here, but he's yep. still here. But <laughs> You know, this like, uh, I thought I could do something right. And like all my teenage angst is just because I hate myself. That was the Isaac. That is still the Isaac (laughs) angst. Don't even worry about it. But so this is like the moment that resonated with me. But you're right. This is not his deal anywhere else in the movie. Right. I do like that Silver knows that Scroop killed Arrow. He gets a look that he interprets and like. In the book, even more so than in this, although it's also a part of this movie, which, like I say, gets a fair amount of the complexity of the book into the movie in a shorter package, or at least hints at it. In the book, all the mutineers other than Silver are pretty stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And he's very much keeping them in line. And, like, they keep wanting to do the mutiny, like, while they're at sea. And he's like, and what if they throw the map overboard, genius? Like, we're on a boat. Where are we going? Right. In the middle of the ocean with no heading. Yeah, that'll work. Like, yeah, he can't he can't. He has to work and work and work to keep them focused on the end result because they all are like instant gratification people. Every single one of them. Exactly. And he's the only one who has any sort of farsightedness. Of the pirates. And while Jim in this movie is a very special boy who saves the day in the book, it very much seems like if the pirates had just listened to Long John Silver, their mutiny would have gone off perfectly without a hitch. Because <laughs> it's, it's also more of a twist than it is in this movie. Yeah. That Silver's a bad guy and that everyone else is a pirate. But you can't really do that in this movie because it's one of the most famous books. It's true. Everybody knows. But I like that, you know, Scroop doesn't need to kill Arrow. Arrow's not really suspicious of the mutiny. He just was, you know, he put Scroop in his place earlier. He had an opportunity. Yeah. And Scroop had an opportunity to get away with it. So he took it. But this is my other favorite scene or favorite moment, perhaps, which is the makings of greatness speech where 
Long John Silver tells Jim, you got the makings of greatness in you. Take the helm and chart your own course. Stick to it, no matter the squalls. And when the time comes, you really get the chance to test the cut of your sails and show what you're made of. Well, I hope I'm there, catching some of the light shining off of you that day. And that's like... I just think that's a really nice sentiment, really yeah. well worded, really well performed. This moment, it gets to my feelings even still, as does when they call it back at the end. Yeah. When he's like, you're gleaming like a solar flare. You're going to rattle the stars. You are. <laughs> it's like, that's just nice. It's like a nice dad thing. <laughs> Feeling very proud and very inspirational. So this those are kind of the two scenes I think of when I think of this movie. When I think of like the cool visuals and soundtrack and and the just the awesome presentation of this film, I think about the spaceport. And when I think about how this movie made me feel when I was a little teenager, didn't know who I was or what I was doing, I think about the makings of greatness <laughs> speech. There you go. And then uh, Jim gets farted in the face. Yep. I, Chases Morph into a barrel and this is the barrel scene. We're in a barrel. It's the barrel scene where he's in the barrel and he overhears about the mutiny and he hears Silver talking about how he doesn't care about Jim. And so, of course, then it's like betrayed. Yes. And in this, again, I think it's pretty obvious in this scene that Silver is denying that he cares about Jim because he's you know, wants to deny that he's gone soft and he wants this mutiny to work out. Right. And he's surrounded by pirates and he doesn't want them to think that he's he can't handle the mutiny. You know, basically, he's trying to keep everything under control and he's got all his plates spinning and has to keep them up. And so he's telling everybody what they want to hear. Unfortunately, Jim hears what he shouldn't have. But then Silver realizes that Jim overheard And I know this is kind of a change from the book, I think, where basically because he sees that Jim found out, he doesn't give Jim a chance to go report to the captain and the others. He just is like, okay, never mind mutiny time now, because they were going to wait until they were on the planet and had found the treasure, I believe. Yes, that's a small change from the book. In the book, it's this is his compromise with his idiot crew is like, all right, I'm, we're not doing a mutiny while we're on the ship, you idiots. But once we get to land, we'll do the mutiny then. we yeah. really should wait until we're at the treasure. But fine, we'll do it when we hit land. So once again, it's silver is forced to do it early. It's a different reason. That's just fine. So the captain and Jim and Doppler, they all escape in the longboat. But it's taken out by a laser ball. <laughs> a laser, laser ball. Just call it a cannonball and have it be a laser. We all know what that means. When you said a boat and it turned out to be a spaceship, we got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The laser ball, it's a funny word and a funny thing, and it does kind of take you out of it, but it's funny. After the whole thing, though, with Jim and Morph, we discover that the map accidentally got left behind on the ship because Morph was imitating it. And so he went along with Jim. Morph sucks. He kind of does. Morph is an annoying pest. <laughs> he's he's not very well behaved. Whose only joke is saying what another character said in the chipmunk voice. Wow. I'm I'm slapping a knee <laughs> here. You hear that knee slapping? No, I mean, it is a funny idea to do that instead of a parrot. It's it's a funny idea. I think it's a cute idea. 
I agree. It's a cute idea. I don't think they do much with it. Captain Amelia gets injured, but they do all make it to land. Mm -hmm. And this is where they need to find what is a fort in the book. And I guess it's a fort in this. I don't know. It's like a weird tube building. It, It is what it is. So Jim goes off to scout and he finds a robot named Ben, who's been alone for 100 years. And he's lost his mind. Literally, a big chunk of the back of his head is missing. And as we said, Martin Short kind of needed to be dialed back just a little bit. His best moment uh, or Ben's best moment is describing the like what he can remember. And he's like, it was buried in the centroid of the mechanism. And his eyes are going crazy, by the way. Yeah. Up there with laser ball. Another thing that always made me cringe a little bit for whatever reason, is talking about the centroid of the mechanism. You can just say center. (laughs) Jim even says, but it's a centroid of the mechanism. What if this planet is the mechanism and we need to go to its center? Like as soon as they can stop saying (laughs) centroid, it's like, you know what? I know it's a, I know it's a robot talking. I don't need you to say centroid. (laughs) Anyway, so they, Ben takes him to his house, basically, which is like a towery thing. So they can go in there, take care of the captain. This is where the doctor has his funny line ripping off Star Trek, where he's like, dang it, Jim, I'm an astronomer, not a doctor. I mean, I am a doctor, just not that kind of doctor. I have a doctorate. It's not the same thing. You can't help people with a doctorate. You just sit there and you're useless. (laughs) The Star Trek joke is a little hack, but I think the extension to it where he's in genuine agony over being the wrong type of doctor redeems that line and makes it good. Yeah, it's it's fun. And this is where you start to see a little bit of a romance between the two of them, which actually has been brewing a little bit like during the supernova. Amelia's like, oh, Dr. Doppler, you were very helpful there. But yeah. yes, this is where we're really getting it going. And this is where Silver uh, has his his palaver, his parlay, if you've seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, <laughs> with yes. Jim. And they do cool tricks here where they keep the camera constantly moving around the background using caps. This was one of the things they were really excited to do with this movie because they were emulating directors like Spielberg and Cameron who constantly keep the camera moving. Yeah. Which they couldn't do in animation because, oh my goodness, imagine... Like, yes. imagine saying to Walt Disney, you know, in the in the 50s, like, hey, what if we made an animated movie where we keep the camera constantly moving? He would have you flayed on Main Street <laughs> USA. <laughs> but it's possible with computers. It is because you just build the whole scene or the whole location as a 3D model. And then you just move around, which is another thing that like modern CGI movies don't take advantage of as much. You still get a lot of like very static shots. Again, not I'm generalizing. I'm just pointing out the amount of thought that went into this movie, how it's not just the technology, but the use thereof. Right. They did a good job. And yeah, this is, you know, this is Silver's like most villainous moment because he's trying to make up with Jim, but Jim doesn't believe him. Why would he? Yeah. And, you know, eventually he, he makes the threat that you have until dawn or I'll kill you all. But afterwards, you see, he kind of regrets that. He's like, that, that, yeah. I didn't really want to say that. I went too far. It's another funny uh, Doppler joke. Doppler, I think, is the most successful comedic character in this movie. It's true. It helps that David Hyde Pierce is really good. <laughs> He's good at being funny. Yeah, it's, uh, he was a comedy actor. Mm-hmm, Imagine mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. But he, um, 
I really like here where Amelia is fading mm-hmm. and she just looks up at him and goes, you have beautiful eyes. And she, he's like, she's out of her mind. She's delirious. <laughs> yep. Uh, and this is where we find out that the whole planet's a machine, or at least it has a lot of machinery in it. Right. As they're trying to escape. Isn't this where Jim decides he has to go back to the ship to... Yeah, to get the map. Get the map, right? Right. Because in the book, he decides to go back to the ship just because he wants to. So again, they're like, (laughs) they're giving it a little more of a reason. Yeah. I think he and Ben go back to the ship, which I'm like... And Morph. You need to... And Morph, (laughs) because Morph's just along all the time. Now, the fact that Ben is always loud... I feel like you maybe should have tied his mouth shut or something because he's just constant. Yeah. Constant noise. Should have left Ben behind. Yeah. But, you know, he has a plan where he needs Ben to do something. This is where we have a little scene, though, with Ben singing the Yo-Ho song, A Pirate's Life for (laughs) Me, from the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, which is cute. You just have to. We end up with a confrontation with Jim and Scroop, of course, because you had to have it. And Jim ends up. Basically killing Scroot, getting him. He gets lost to space. So the artificial gravity gets turned off. They're kind of floating up. Jim manages to save himself, but Scroop floats away. Mm hmm. Right. The, the fun thing that you need Ben to be here for is to pull all the wires, which is a good idea for a scene. And some really good use of CGI environments here as you're running through the bowels of the ship. Yeah. And then, of course, they return and Silver gets the map back from them. But turns out only Jim can figure out how to operate it, so he has to go along. This next movement of the movie is just about making everything look as cool as possible. The green magic line for the map and then the uh, cool little controls that come up, the huge triangle portal, which, of course, is how Flint was able to disappear. Yep. Um, the whole planet being a mechanism, all leading up to the payoff that is so worth it, which is the giant treasure ball held up <laughs> with these gravity lasers, an actual treasure planet. Yes, a planet of treasure within the planet. They really knew they had to make this look as cool as possible. Yep for a big visual payoff and I think they nailed it and there is a really a moment I really like a moment of again great characterization for the only character who gets it in this movie when Silver's down on the ground and there's a variation of the Silver theme played and he's like a lifetime of searching and he's like tired you know yeah and he's finally here and he can't believe he truly can't believe it and of course as they're walking in to the treasure area you see them like walk through a laser beam and set off an alarm of some sort. And then we f- see Captain Flint has joined the Skeleton League. Yes! And, <laughs> and he's holding in his skeleton hand the rest of Ben's brain. So, of course, Jim takes it and plugs it back in. And then Ben is like, oh, yeah, he took my brain. So I couldn't tell anybody about the booby trap. You should have been watching the really obvious tripwire when you entered the room. Like, so, so obvious. Exactly. Sure, just stepped over it. But now you, like me, will become a skeleton. Yes, just trapped with the treasure forever. Indeed. Yes. Uh, And this, again, 
this is the biggest change from the book. I'm sorry for talking so much about the book. That's OK. Yeah, this because like they actually get the treasure and it's it, it just everything about this is different, but that's OK. Yeah, it's it's a good for this version of Silver. It's good to make him choose between the treasure, his dream and saving Jim. And of course, he chooses to save Jim with another great line reading, which is the oh, blast me for a fool. (laughs) And I think that moment is so good and so triumphant. You really don't need the little afterwards. It's a little too cute when he goes, oh, it's just a lifelong obsession, Jim. I'll get over it. It's like, yeah, we got (laughs) this movie doesn't really need to be funny. I'm shocked I'm saying that because. Mm I say the opposite of most Disney movies, but (laughs) this one works best when it's a little more serious and a little more adventure and a little a little darker. And the attempts at humor mostly fall flat, but whatever. Just a lifelong obsession. You just wish that they had better humor. Yes. Well, that's the other thing. If you're going to have jokes, maybe double check that they're good and not bad. So then the planet, of course, is exploding because, you know, Captain Flint, apparently, if anybody came to try to steal the treasure, then nobody could have it ever. So uh, they have to escape through the portal. And, you know, Jim saves them by punching the buttons so they can go to the Montressor spaceport. And Jim and Silver specifically have to trust each other. Jim has to trust Silver to get the ship on course. Silver has to trust that Jim's going to do what he says he's going to do. And there's a moment where they share a look and it is like, should we be trusting each other? Are we really going <laughs> to do this? And then they both kind of decide independently. Yes. All right. Let's do it. What choice do we have? It's a good moment. And then they escape the end. Hurrah. The captain says she's going to recommend Jim for the Interstellar Academy. So, you know, to give him some future there, I guess. Yep. Join the army. Become a space cop. Turn your life around. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Delbert and Amelia hug with a hug that says, oh, yeah, this is happening. (laughs) And Silver runs off. And this is this is the real end of the movie is Jim letting Silver go. Yep. But deciding to chart his own course and being like, you know what? I've been messed up by my dad running off, allegedly. (laughs) And that has haunted me my whole life. According to Tell Don't Show. (laughs) But you know what? I'm okay with you running off my other dad and I'm going to be okay. You don't need to worry about me anymore. I'm going to get my life back on track. Yep. And he's going to rattle the stars. (laughs) And also he gets to keep more because Silver doesn't. Silver's like, man, this thing seems like it causes a lot of problems. Morph, I'm going to need you to keep an eye on Jim. This is a touching gesture. Do not let it. Cat Grand Councilwoman style. Don't let that thing on my ship. <laughs> and he's laughing as he leaves. You know, I think their their final exchange is something like Jim saying, don't get into trouble. And he's like, what have I ever done otherwise? <laughs> I'm a pirate. Yes. yes. I mean, I suspect he's still got a little bit of the treasure in his pockets. He had some treasure that he gave to Jim out of his pocket. So, you know, he he got some more. He left with something. He didn't get the whole treasure, but he, got he didn't get the loot of a thousand worlds, but he got the loot of I'm going to be able to pay for passage on another ship. Yeah, he got the loot of a, you know, a fun month in the spaceport. So then when the ship finally arrives, we get the wonderful hug moment between Jim and his mother and the smile like, you know, oh, everything's going to be OK now, you know? <laughs> 
And then we have the montage of, you know, the inn is rebuilt and uh, time has passed. We see everybody in the inn for like a big celebration. Amelia and Doppler are married and have kids and they have Lady and the Tramp kids where they've got three girls and one boy. Yes. (laughs) And the girls look like Amelia and the boy looks like Doppler. Make them half dog, half cat abominations. (laughs) And then Jim comes in. Escorted by the space cop robots. No, no, no. No, they are. They literally are. They roll in and everybody's like, oh, no, you know, has something happened? But then they're like, no, we're presenting Jim. We've brought him home from the academy. With his fancy uniform from the academy and it's all good now and. Then we have the final song in the credits and the credits roll. Yep, we have a dance. Ben has a whole dancing moment where he does do like a disco move. But <laughs> I appreciate the restraint to have him not do the robot. I was genuinely shocked. I was like, all oh, right, and this is where he does the robot. Even as many times as I've seen this movie, I'm just like, and of course he does the robot. <laughs> and then the final image is a uh, silver Mufasa style in the clouds. In the cloud, yeah. <laughs> which is in the ether. Yes, which is kind of funny, but I love it anyway. And his uh, <laughs> Star bu- that is forming his eye blinks or whatever. Don't worry about it. It's cool. Yeah, it's and, weird. And then, yeah. And then when I see myself, I'll always know <laughs> where you are. Yeah, I'm still here and always know where you are. He'll always know where Silver is in the cloud, in the menacing cloud that looms over him at all times. What I'm saying is he literally became the cloud. It's time for sequels, spin-offs, remakes, clouds, and reboots. <laughs> there were none. This movie made zero dollars. Yeah. This movie made negative many dollars. <laughs> Funnily enough, you mentioned when we were doing the Atlantis episode how there was a ride, there was a submarine ride, they, they were going to make an Atlantis ride. I don't know if you saw this. They then were like, "Okay, Atlantis failed. We'll make it a Treasure Planet ride. And it was I didn't see that. It was when Treasure Planet failed that they eventually settled on, of course, the Finding Nemo ride. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. We're going to make this ride something. Next movie is a hit. We're making it the ride. And then when it was Finding Nemo, they're like, perfect. They were planning to do direct to video sequels and a television series. They really thought this was going to be a huge hit. They really did. Yeah. Like everyone who worked on this believed in it so much and it it didn't happen. It's sad because usually when it's a passion project like this, it works. It comes out good. But this movie just didn't quite do it. I think it's a mixture of a lot of things. The concept not grabbing people. The release certainly opposite Harry Potter, like you said. Yeah. And just the fact that the shine was off of Disney. Like, as we said, not coincidentally, I think after Dinosaur, none of them made their money back except for the super cheap Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. Which super cheap and super good. It had to be one of the best Disney movies and it had to cost way less in order for it to make its money back. This movie actually made more money than uh, Lilo and Stitch in raw money. It just didn't cover right it had cost so much more people were just out of it disney movies were not appointment viewing and especially one that seemed kind of weird and it's like wait it's treasure island but in space like that weird 
in a kind of slow old book, like, but it's in space. I don't know, man. Like the Muppets thing. I don't know. <laughs> and it's not a musical. You know, I think some of this experimental stuff is just not what people wanted from a Disney movie. Like they were like, see, we don't have to do musicals. And people were like, be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> I do think it's cool, though, that, you know, the first completely live action Disney movie that they ever made was Treasure Island in 1950. And I think it's fun that they came back to it for Treasure Island in space, even if they didn't have any specific callbacks. So I don't know what they would do to call it back, because just the fact that it's, you know, if you're having pirates behave in piratey manners, then that's basically referencing Treasure Island. Yes. (laughs) And I do like how the the fact that pirates go are is from that movie. Yes. I mean, again, Disney defined a lot of stuff. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But um, there was going to be a Treasure Planet 2 that actually has like several designs and concept arts you can find online. Well, yeah, they'd been working on it for, I think, like eight months before the movie, you know, the first movie came out and bombed. And then they were like, cancel it. Did you see your your boy Willem Dafoe was going to be the villain? Believe me, mom, I've known about this for years and been upset about yeah, it, which is yep, that, yes, yep, my yep. favorite actor Bar none. Willem Dafoe, my absolute number one favorite, who is a great voice actor in his own right, was going to play the villain named Ironbeard. And the the premise was going to be Jim Hawkins and a love interest named Kate. They would be at the Royal Interstellar Academy and they would team up with Long John Silver. It seems like basically Silver would show up and be like, me boy, we have to stop Ironbeard. He's going to free the inmates of this nearby prison asteroid. And I think there's some fancy ship. I mean, if you asked me when I was like in high school or college, I would have said that this is like my white whale of like a lost, you know, pop culture project (laughs) that never was. It probably would have been another lousy DTV sequel. It's a weird thing to try to do because like Treasure Island doesn't have a sequel and this movie is just Treasure Island. So what's the sequel going to be? And yet there were two. There was the Disney live action Treasure Island had two sequels. It had a sequel movie just with Long John Silver and a TV series because everybody loved Long John Silver so much. So, right. you know, doing sequels for something that didn't have one is definitely a thing that they did. But Defoe as this iron beard, cool looking robot guy, I would have liked to see that. I wish we could have talked about it. Yeah. Also, from the concept art I've seen of Amelia, she was or uh, of Kate, rather the love interest. She was also gonna be a cat girl. Yeah, there's some video games. Yeah, I looked up one of them because I was like this Treasure Planet battle at Procyon or Procyon. I don't know. It's a made up word. Probably Procyon. Probably Procyon. Because I was like a real time strategy game. You know, like uh, like mm-hmm. an Age of Empires or a uh, Starcraft. Mm-hmm. that's treasure planet like that sounds awesome so i watched some playthrough footage of it it was not <laughs> <laughs> i suspected it was not it looked very bad and it's a real-time strategy game where you control one unit a ship and you're just kind of very slowly bumping into other 3d ships and it uh, looks like it barely meets the legal definition of a game <laughs> which is a shame because it's sort of an interesting idea, but I get the sense this thing was rushed out to, you know, come out when the movie came out. 
And there were some others that I didn't look at because they seemed even less interesting than that. At the parks, I could only find that they had Jim and Ben as walk around characters at the parks when the movie first came out. I couldn't even find anything of Silver, which I was like, I would think they would want to do Silver because he's the other main character. But maybe they were having a hard time trying to build a costume for him, you know? I don't know. It's You'd think it'd be easier than Ben because he's human shaped, you know? I mean, Ben is kind of human shaped, too. Yeah, but he's super skinny. I'm looking at this costume now and they've kind of had to draw the costume on like a brown skin suit. Yeah, kind of. Because he's like too skinny versus like, you know, listen, get get a fat suit. Make the face, give him his cyborg arm or whatever. I don't know. I don't know why they wouldn't have done silver either. Maybe. I don't know, but I couldn't find any images of it. And you only ever see them occasionally now at Disneyland Paris in their Discovery Land because they they fit with the aesthetic again, <laughs> like like in Atlantis. Well, we've wrung all of the uh, sequel spinoffs we can <laughs> out of a movie that has none of those things. <laughs> I know. I hope they don't make a Delarm of this one, even though you definitely could. And normally we're like, well, you should make reboots of the movies that are less good. But the, the magic of this one's the animation. You take that. What what do you got? Yeah, if they redid this one, they would make it look terrible. And while they might get you might get some better acting stuff going on, it wouldn't be nearly as pretty, I feel like. Yeah, but I think they'll do a Delarm of literally every other movie in the canon before they get to this one. <laughs> this one probably still stings a bit. Yeah, I, I, I do think so. But mom, would you uh, would you recommend this here movie and would you show it to a child or let other family members <laughs> take your children to it? I believe I would recommend this movie. It's fine. <laughs> like the story is Treasure Island. If you like the story of Treasure Island, it's pretty good. It's this, you know, it's not great. It's not the story itself is nothing special, but the visuals and the music are both great. It, you can have a good time with it. Mm -hmm. And for kids and for kids. Yeah, I think it's fine. Um, the only really scary stuff is with Scroop. Yeah. I mean, I guess it could be a little scary that Mr. Arrow goes flying off into space, but yeah, Scroop is it's definitely a like, know your kids situation. Exactly. I, I don't know if I'd have handled that, except I did in theaters. So I don't know. At least I think I did. Yeah. You know, I would recommend this movie. I don't really disagree with your assessment of it at all. Right. Like everything yeah. you say is 100 percent accurate. I would just add and it means a lot to me. Yeah. This will probably always be. One of my favorites, mm -hmm. despite everything. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite Disney movies, at least. Um, it just, you know, it gets me right there. And mm -hmm. I think that it does have some interesting uh, emotional complexity with Silver. And it has some characters I like. And I really think, especially if you're an animation nerd, you have to see this thing because nothing else looks like this. Nothing else ever would look like this again. It's such a special technical achievement, even if you hate everything about the movie itself, which I wouldn't agree with, but I would understand. As for kid, like we said, you got to test the Scroop factor. But other than that, <laughs> Scroop's kind of scary. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. He's a little scary. He is kind of scary. What a treat. You know, I thought this was going to be a, a contentious episode. I thought this was going to be me going like, it's great. And you being like, it stinks. <laughs> uh, it hasn't been so much. We've no. both kind of gotten to the point where we're both like, it's good, but flawed. Yeah. 
so we'll have to find something else to fight about. <laughs> I mean, I guess that was sort of the Brave Little Toaster episode. But next week, we're not talking about Treasure Planet or Brave Little Toaster. We're talking about Brother Bear. And Mom, I can't ask you what you thought of that one. Brother Bear is the one I never wanted to watch. <laughs> and never. Ha- is this the only one you haven't seen? To be honest, I don't think I've seen the newer, the 2011 Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, neither of us have seen that. I haven't seen, seen that. that one. That's true. Those two are now the only two I haven't seen. And I was never going to watch Brother Bear. I was like, this is going to be my one I never watch. Just like your dad was like, I'm never going to watch Pocahontas. It'll be my one Disney movie I never see. (laughs) (sighs) Now I'm going to watch it. And then you agreed to a podcast without thinking through the ramifications. No, I did think through the ramifications because I I did say, like, I'm going to have to watch Brother Bear. Um, So I have seen this movie and what I think of this one is that it's very bad. So until next time, when mom (laughs) is discovering the very badness of Brother Bear, I'm me. And I'm mom. And it all started with a mouse. (laughs) 